Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're up to chapter four of the Course Health series, and I hope you've enjoyed the previous episodes. In this episode, I talk again with two of the editors of the Course Health book, Dr. Rani Loanyam and Dr. Eleanor Rocker, about chapter four, which they co-wrote titled, When a Cause Cannot Be Found. And in this episode, we talk about medically unexplained symptoms, or MUS, and how such health conditions which defy a clear biomedical explanation provided a practical and clinical challenge for course health to take on. We talk about how the mere accumulation of more biomedical knowledge and scientific discoveries won't necessarily lead to a satisfactory explanation of MUS in individual patients, and how and why a dispositionist view of causation will offer a deeper and person-focused understanding of the complexity associated with MUS. We discuss the problem of uniqueness and outline the challenge this poses both practically, i.e. clinically and methodologically, and also the broader and more fundamental philosophical challenge of medically unexplained symptoms. We talk about how methodological and evidential pluralism and inclusivism can help provide this deeper contextual understanding of causation, which is not captured by RCTs and other quantitative methods alone. Furthermore, we talk about how other forms of evidence, such as patient narratives, case studies, and qualitative research, which don't traditionally get involved with causation, but when taking a dispositionist view, do in fact have lots to say and contribute in regards to causation in healthcare. So this episode really made me reflect on the role and contribution of qualitative research towards causal explanations in healthcare, whether it be recovery, the improvement from treatment interventions, or the onset of pain and illness. The dispositionless view that cause health promotes opens up space for qualitative methodologies and methods to really sit at the table of causation and offers researchers in these disciplines a theoretical framework to allow rich detailed and often abstract qualitative evidence which is constructed from multiple individual perspectives and experiences to add to an understanding of causation in individual patients. So once again I bring you Dr. Rani Lil Anyam and Dr. Eleanor Rocker. Rani and Eleanor welcome once again to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And so in this episode, we're going to talk through your chapter four of the book, which is called When a Cause Cannot Be Found, which sounds quite sinister. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a bit like that. It is a headache in the medical profession. So yeah, I think they hear that when they hear medically unexplained. Dun, dun, yeah. dun. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the chapter really starts by setting out this concept or this idea of medically unexplained symptoms. And, you know, I'm imagining or or many clinicians will be familiar with the idea of non-specificity of diagnoses and ambiguity of symptoms. But I wonder if you could tell us about medically unexplained symptoms as it's described in the book. Yeah, the medically unexplained uh, symptoms, uh, it has a very important place in the Call Cells project because it was the starting point. Because these are conditions where you cannot find what something that counts as a medical cause. Um, so when I heard it first time, the medically unexplained symptoms, I thought, Ooh, what on earth is that? And all of these conditions that fall under the term, I had never heard of any of them. But now, of course, I heard of them, and I'm sure I had a couple of them as well. <laughs> so for instance, chronic fatigue syndrome, an irritable bowel syndrome and low back pain. And I mean, this post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, we have all heard about and the tension headache, which a lot of people have. 
so these are classified by many people as medically unexplained because you cannot find any pathology that can explain the symptoms. But it's another problem as well, which is that different patients who have these conditions, it's not clear how well they fit into the category or whether there is actually a clear distinction between, for instance, fibromyalgia and depression, fatigue, anxiety, because there are all these overlapping symptoms. So mm. it is difficult when you have a diagnosis where you need, well, at least ideally, some sufficient necessary conditions to saying that someone belongs to this, <laughs> to this uh, diagnosis, because you want to have a, a proper diagnosis before you start treating people. But here it's not just the classifications, it's, it's also that they don't know what's the real cause. And by real cause, they mean something very specific. They mean something that could fit into the medical or biomedical model where it is kind of same cause, same effect. So if you have this, um, if you have any of these diagnoses, there should be something in common with other people who have them and something in common that could causally explain how you ended up with this condition. And, and they have these very complex causes. So there's some somatic, some physiological things. So it's a lot of complexity going on, not only on the symptom level, but also on the level of the causal story. So uh, we, we talked to Roger Carey very early on, and he said, when you have these medically unexplained symptoms, even if you don't have any RCTs, for instance, that would back up <laughs> a causal story, uh, most patients seem to have some idea of when they became ill or when it started, maybe how it started or something that triggered it. For instance, low back pain. So they were bending down to pick up something and then suddenly they felt a real ache and it hasn't been gone uh, since. And But of course, there's no RCT to back up that if you bend down to pick up something, you will end up with chronic uh, nonspecific low back pain. So it's 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 this idea that we keep coming back to of same cause same effect that is really mm. challenged here. Just on that, so I remember speaking to a former colleague of mine, the late Stephen Tyron, about this a few years ago, and and I put to him, is it the case that so MUS medically unexplained symptoms that they're unexplained because we just don't have enough evidence? So at one point everything was unexplained, right? I mean the 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 shape of the earth was unexplained and we we thought that the sun revolved around you know the earth, all these things so is it the case that if we just get more evidence more knowledge then we will explain back pain or fibromyalgia or and so is it a question of just insufficient evidence or is it the case I was thinking about this too again yeah. trying to answer my own questions before I've asked them that if we just if we just keep generating evidence or knowledge with a kind of monocausal view, then we'll never have enough evidence to explain these complex diagnoses or MUS. Yeah, I think maybe it's a, maybe it could be a combination because some of these conditions, maybe there is a hidden cause that we don't know anything about that is physical and that would explain everything. But in the profession, the idea is that if we keep doing more of the same, if we have more RCTs, more studies, you know, eventually we should be able to find the single cause or at least the main cause or the trigger or the thing, the one thing that is common for everyone that can explain why they get these uh, these things. And for instance, and, and that would mean that they treat it as an epistemological problem. That is a pure empirical issue. And, and what we did in the Cause Health project, and this started back uh, when we were working with a colleague of us called Tui Eirik Eriksson, who works on medically unexplained symptoms. And what he said is that, yeah, in the profession, it's like, yeah, we're waiting for an explanation. But we thought instead that actually this is pointing to a much deeper philosophical problem and methodological problem that comes from understanding causation as a mono, you know, like in the monocausal model, for instance, and within the human model. So uh, we did think that this is a limit case. There are limit cases to the paradigm of evidence-based medicine. So they're kind of showing us where 
it doesn't work because if you have a single cause, I mean, you could even say that for any condition that is complex, maybe there is one thing we know, for instance, with cancer or heart conditions, there's a lot of things that would be part of the causal story and many things that would be individual with, uh, with individual variations. But because there is one thing at least that is understood, we can focus on that as the main important cause. Mm. And then we can target the treatment towards that. What we cannot explain is why people would respond so differently to treatment, which would be part of the causal story from the dispositions perspective, because yeah, everyone has different dispositions. That means they will respond to the treatment with different, well, to different degrees, for instance, or sooner or faster or depending on all the other things. And what we are saying is that if you knew more about these other things, you might also understand the condition better in general. I, I did have something to say about the, the question, uh, whether more knowledge will produce more understanding. And uh, it is, I mean, why not? I mean, normally that's the case. It might be also the case in the medical explained symptoms, but let's not forget that in many cases, more knowledge provoked actually less understanding until there was a change of a paradigm, something that made us look at the knowledge in another light. So sometimes what we need is not more knowledge, but also a different way to look at that, the change of mm. paradigm and the premises, which is also what we are advocating in this book. So if we change the paradigm and then research was generated in this new paradigm, would they would they remain unexplained? Is it the case that at some point, so, so currently they're outside the, the vision of the biomedical model and biomedically orientated research with the assumptions and monocausal assumptions which are kind of part of that research. If we shift paradigm, get a dispositionless view of causation and we do research kind of with, with these assumptions embedded into the into the studies, will they become explained? Or is it the case they will remain unexplained forevermore, regardless of the paradigm? Our hypothesis is that the change of paradigm would help explaining them, yes. Yeah, because here you might have a good plausible causal story in the individual case that might even be understood from a mechanistic point of view. So for instance, Anna-Louise Kirkengen, she has also written together with Twitter Eriksson on on medically unexplained symptoms. And a lot of the conditions that she also works with would be unexplained in the profession because you have people with very complex, chronic, unexplained health problems who have been in the system for decades and they have tried everything and nothing has worked. So when they come to her and she is more focused on the phenomenological approach and the narrative, uh, they will have a causal story to tell, which makes sense of uh, their symptoms. And the same with Brian Broom. He is maybe the person who works most targeted in this direction from his uh, expertise of immunology and uh, psychotherapy, which he combines to try to get into the core of the conditions of their patients. But, but yeah, they come to him when they haven't been able to get help yeah. within the normal approach. I'm going to hang on this point. With an individual patient, when, you, when you're trying to, to develop a causal story for that individual patient, so not, not large populations. So, so I understand that you know, things like low back pain remain unexplained on, on a large population level because there's so much variance in terms of the experience and the, the properties which might be involved in it. But on an individual level with, a, with an individual patient, when you're trying to obtain or, or develop this causal story, it they kind of become explained, don't they? So you 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 arrive at a position where this particular patient, with example, is experiencing low back pain. You get a, or you hope to get, or you you might well get a reasonable, reasonably sophisticated causal explanation as to why this person at this moment in their life developed these sorts of symptoms, back pain, and so it. Is it the case you can explain it on an individual level, but you, currently the methods we have are unable to explain it on a much broader population level? So, yeah, so that's the question. I mean, when it comes to evidence-based medicine, because if you have a population health perspective on 
what it is to have causal evidence. Well, then you need population-based mm. evidence. But if you have a singularist approach where you think that causation happens in the particular case with their unique causal process leading up to the illness and causal process of recovery, then that would be what you would expect, that everyone is, what they say, deceased in their own way. You know, so so you wouldn't expect that two completely different people would have exactly the same kind of issues uh, with any kind of uh, condition. I mean, we see also now with the with the coronavirus, people have all sorts of different responses to it, uh, short term, long term. Some people don't get yeah. it at all. I mean, this is. T- oh, and the vaccine too. It seems like it's depending on which vaccine you're going to take. It's either effective in sixty percent of cases or ninety. 5.5 percent of cases so there's huge variation there and even with the same intervention so why are those 40 percent of people what what's subtly different about their immune system or i, I was just thinking yeah elena might be inspired now no i just wanted to say that in a point to make about these uh, measures of effect in effectiveness in trials of covid vaccine etc are based on certain aspects that are made measurable. So there are certain endpoints that you measure and that makes sense at the population level. While, uh, you know, a a different matter is when you're, of course, when you're trying to understand a story and a person who's perceiving something, experiencing and uh, giving some meaning also to the state they are. And this is, of course, not the aim of population trials. So we have to remember that different type of evidence for different aims. Okay, so if we want to use population trials to understand something, then we can do that, but in light of their aim and also of their limitations. So if you want to understand something so complex, like this kind of syn- syndromes where you don't really, no one uh, yet was able to make a difference w- between psyche and soma. So they're interrelated. And it's uh, there's a lot about how you experience the meaning. So. There's this limitation of measuring endpoints, of course. So arriving to uniqueness and medical uniqueness in the context of medically unexplained symptoms, in the book you refer to the problem of uniqueness as both a philosophical problem and a practical problem. What what are those problems? I'm interested in, as a clinician, the practical problems, but what what are the main philosophical and practical problems? Well, so the practical problem is, of course, if someone is unique and they claim that uh, they have a causal story leading up to their illness and you have never seen it before. So, for instance, Elena can tell you about this, but the first person to ever report a side effect, for instance, from a drug that no one has heard of or had before. I mean, practically, how do you know? It could come from something else. So this side effect might not be a side effect at all, for instance. So that's the practical perspective. How can you know that something is really causal if you have only seen it once and not before? And uh, But from a philosophical point of view, this problem is conceptual because David Hume, he said that nothing counts as a cause unless it has been repeated many, many times. And he would ideally want to see a perfect correlation between cause and effect, at least under the same conditions. And... If you have that as a starting point, then, of course, there wouldn't be any unique case of causation. So uniqueness wouldn't be causal. It would, per definition, be not caused. So Hume says that if the creation of the universe happened only once, there was no causation involved. So God, for instance, if it was him, didn't cause anything. The Big Bang didn't cause anything if it was the Big Bang. And... I mean, I think in the uh, I think we also mentioned this the extinction of the dinosaurs. I mean, it happened only once. Well, was there no causation involved? No. (laughs) So philosophically, if you start from this perspective, then you will never get to any understanding of of, uh, uniqueness. But the dispositionalist theory is a singularist theory, stating that causation happens in general on the population level, for instance, because there is a causal process going on within the individual people in the study. So if a drug has an effect or an intervention has an effect in a population so that you can see a difference making on the large scale, it is because it makes a difference 
it causes an intrinsic change in those patients who are part of the study. So you, you wouldn't go the other way to say that if you see a kind of correlation or a statistical difference maker, then you know that there was an intrinsic disposition going on, some causal process in each and every one. It could be an, uh, just a statistical coincidence that you get these results. So, so from a singularist perspective, causation happens primarily in the individual, and then everything you record on the population level is just the sum of what's happening in the individual cases. And we would never expect that those individual cases are ever the same. So there wouldn't be any normal or ideal conditions where everything would give you perfect regularities like Hume wanted. So the position of medical or or taking the position of medical uniqueness in terms of individual patients helps us navigate medically unexplained symptoms, right? So coming back to the kind of clinical problem of patients walking around with these unsolvable, unexplained symptoms, the position of medical uniqueness or, or recognizing that causation happens in the individual case helps the clinician understand the causal mechanisms at play. So I'm trying to connect those two. You've got Medical uniqueness is a thing. You've got the practical clinical problem of unexplained symptoms. How does the position of medical uniqueness, adopting that position as a clinician, help us understand our patients? Well, as you said, when you when someone comes with some pain, chronic pain, and you get to know them and you hear their causal story, it seems like there is a plausible story there. But if you look at the evidence, you're not going to find anything to back it up. So this would allow you to actually go further with your own with your own hypothesis yeah. and to uh, design a treatment plan that would target that causal uh, story instead of some, well, maybe, maybe if there is something that is backed up statistically, but only in 15% and you don't expect this patient to fall within that. I mean, you have a, you have a reason to, to, make a treatment plan. So, so for instance, obesity is sometimes thought of as uh, uh, medically, you know, it's a medically complex yeah. illness where people have all, all sorts of unknown factors. But uh, Kai Brynjahagen, for instance, he finds that people have stories that would perfectly explain why they overeat or comfort eat or why they use food instead of, for instance, drugs, <laughs> or instead of starving themselves, you know? And if you if you know something about that, well, what he does is that he advised that they get help to sort out their emotional pain as well, and not just to eat less, because that's not going to, to help anyone or to just put them through surgery. Yeah. So I, I think once you have a plausible causal story in the individual case, that could have mechanistic backings as well. I think you have something to go on there. And for instance, uh, what Anna-Louise Kirkengen has worked on is how this prolonged stress and childhood trauma actually can lead to chronic inflammation from a biomedical perspective. So it is biomedical, and recently they have been able to back it up more statistically as well. But all of these people, they're not getting help because their symptoms always give them different, a bunch of different diagnoses. So you might get, you know, physicians and clinicians saying, well, hang on, like, we know, we recognise the idea of multi, the multifactorial nature of disease or pain. We know this, like, we know it's multifactorial. We know it's, you know, it's not, you can get 100 people to smoke cigarettes every day for their entire life and only a certain proportion will get cancer or problems there are other factors at play what's the difference between i suppose the complexity that you're advocating for and just saying things are multifactorial are they are they, are they synonymous terms or, or ideas i've got a feeling they're probably not i think ontologically they're probably different so if you for instance if you have Lots of people smoking and not everyone developing cancer. So from the regularity perspective, you would say that, well, under ideal conditions, everyone would get cancer. <laughs> you know, if all the conditions were just right, which they obviously were for all these people who got it, then necessarily 
they had to get the cancer. And then you would assume that there's something in common for all of these people who develop the cancer. And if only you could reproduce all of those factors that were the same, then you would know that you would get the same effect. So the singularist perspective would deny that because we would say that no, uh, causation doesn't happen by necessitation so that if you have these and these conditions, then necessarily you will get the effect. Instead, we say that causation happens uh, like tendencies, that the dispositions would give you a tendency towards the effect that can be stronger or weaker. So some of these people might be more or less disposed towards cancer. Uh, some of them might smoke more than others. Some of them might start smoking earlier in their life when they're more vulnerable. So there could be all these different causal mechanisms that are involved. But to say that under ideal or normal or average conditions, they should all have this particular effect, that would be something that wouldn't follow. And also, I mean, this, this stipulation of ideal conditions really just mean that you got the effect. It doesn't mean anything concrete about which conditions were in place. So it's like the test is just whether you get it or not. And if you get it, then something must have been the same. So you emphasize patient narratives and knowing the patient's context. So I just wonder, is it the case that that on the whole, making a very broad sweeping statement about healthcare, that clinicians weren't valuing or taking notice of the patient's context previously? And I get the second point to that is, and I think we did touch on this in previous episodes with Rani, is to what end does getting real kind of purchase of the patient context give us causal insights? That's, uh, I would say, a key question. I'm going to, in order to answer, I think it will uh, be okay to draw my personal experience, although it is not as a clinician, it is as a researcher, it is really based and really rooted in the clinical observation. And this is a job uh, that I do on post-monitoring drug safety. What does it mean? Well, I think clinicians will know when a new drug is uh, in the market. We don't have a very overview, a very good overview of the safety uh, issues it might have. So what we do is we try to observe the impact on the population. And the way it is mainly done, it is through spontaneous reports of facts that show up uh, and are reported in a clinical encounter. So the reports are made either by clinicians or by patients. And I would say that ideally it should be done by both uh, together. There should be collaborative uh, uh, drug report that maybe we should push for. So so what what we do what people do uh, working at these uh, issues they work with huge databases of uh, of patient reports and these reports get coded so someone says tags the reports with the name of the drug and the name of the symptom so that it's possible to retrieve single reports from we talk about 26 million reports no so if i want to look at uh, what a drug reported by a drug so i i write the name and then here comes a lot of reports and I, I write another name of the symptom and there comes a lot of reports that have both both of these tags together. So what am I going to do? I mean, of course, I don't know whether this is report is causal. I just know that it's reported together. So one approach is, of course, to look how many of them do I have. And that would be the frequencies, human, uh, regularity approach that we've talked so much about. Which could be, of course, an indication, but still, I mean, the problem that we face is really uh, big. So there are two, I would say. One problem is underreporting, which is that uh, patients and clinicians do not report enough side effects. But also another big problem that is not very talked about, very much talked about, is the quality of report is so bad because we often get only that, uh, you know, this drug and the patient had this dot. So, so what can you do about that? This is really the demonstration that if you do not have a story there, 
you don't know much. The only thing you can do is count how many times. But in these cases where you're outside an experiment and you're observing, you need to observe patient what what has happened in the story in order to understand was it causal. For instance, you need to know the temporality. Uh, you know, did the side effect show up at the temporality that fits with what I know about the drug theoretically? Was the patient sick from before? Is he taking uh, other drugs? And one thing that I really would like to see uh, in this report is why did the patient think that the symptom has something to do with the drug? Why does the patient think that it should be reported? Or why does the patient think it shouldn't be reported? And the clinician insists for that. And that's something you never see. I mean, you never ask these patients. You never report. You 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 report when the report is very good. There are a lot of biomarkers, you know, blood tests, which is really good. But I would say that it would be even better if I had to choose between the two, I would prefer to have a story of why the patient thinks, because then I have a, a lot of information about, you know, before this, I never experienced that, or, oh, it really happened when, or or, or they can even uh, describe this process that you feel when you feel that something is connected with something else. So I think that uh, uh, this is a really an example that shows how it, it is possible to evaluate causation in the single case if you know the context, you have this richness of context knowledge and you just forget for a moment about how many times it has happened in other cases. Um, of course, you have uh, many points of view here because other experts uh, in the field could tell you something different. Um, for instance, someone could think that not, not everyone thinks that this patient uh, point of view is uh, the best we could have. Someone could think that, you know, patients in the end, they don't have, uh, they don't know uh, well enough to judge whether whether the symptom uh, was causal to the, to the drug. So, of course, not all the assessors who have my job would uh, agree with me now. Someone will say that, uh, someone might say that having a lot of patient voices could, in fact, work as a kind of noise because uh, the patient doesn't have enough, no enough knowledge about the theory of pharmacology, of medicine, in order to make this uh, causal connection in a scientifically objective enough way. So then we get all these reports of patients who are, oh, are they, do they know what uh, they talk about? This is one point of view. The other point of view would be to say that the patients are experts about their experience and their condition and their history. Well, about this, they know much more than uh, the clinician. So that's why I would advocate collaboration in the in the report. No? So where you get the voice of the patient and the voice of the clinician joining together. The patient saying why they think that this is causal and the clinician backing it up with their uh, uh, knowledge, if they also agree, of course, if they agree. Or could be also hmm. disagreement and explain the disagreement. That would be so valuable for the job we do. It's such an interesting... So if the clinician reports a particular side effect on behalf of the patient... Then that's taken as that's taken as some kind of truth. There's some validity there. If the patient reports a side effect or an experience following a, a medication or drug, it's discounted as being unreliable. Well, well, I shouldn't I shouldn't say that it is discounted as unreliable in general. So there are a lot of people doing a lot of work in order to get patient patient voice and patient reports. So it it it's on its way to being evaluated more and more. So from the past where it was considered unreliable, now it's on its way. So the movement is in the direction we want to go. But we're very, very far from reports, as far as I can see, that are really narratives and not only medical cases, you know, written only in medical language. I, I don't see anything about what does the patient think uh, here, like, why does the patient give me a story that convinced me to be causal, for instance? There's much more value into uh, having all the biomarkers, etc. And I, again, very useful. Everything is useful. The point is that why do we have all, all with that, only that part? 
and we discount the part of the patient's point of view and narrative, the context. Where is this happening? We seem to be touching on the different methods, I suppose, and and trying to kind of figure out causality purely through statistics versus methods which give us a different form of data and different perspectives and different insights. And so perhaps you could say something about that. I mean, because that's pretty much what you presented, right? You said in your you're essentially coding, numerically coding probably frequency, how often heartburn gets tagged with I don't know, propranolol. I have no idea. Whatever. And that gets, you know, and that's, yes. you know, 100,000 cases. That must be really important. <laughs> but it's devoid of any context. It's devoid of all sorts of information which might be causally relevant. And we get the same in, you know, medical research, surveys, chucking out statistics around people's experiences or attitudes and beliefs. But we get no real insight or, or narrative in, in these methods to maybe just say something about how this view of complexity translates to the practical methods of research which we might use. Yes, so it would translate into a genuine uh, pluralism, which what we is what we advocate and we try also to express through the book. So if you think that when you're looking for causation, you're looking for a disposition, you're looking for something that is intrinsic. So it's something that you cannot really see you can see symptoms of it. But of course, the, the, you can see what you do. You, you see many symptoms and then you try to put them together in a picture and get an understanding of this disposition and the way it manifests. So, for example, if you want to understand how uh, that uh, a, gla- a grass fragile uh, and it will break. So Hume would say, like, drop it many times and see what happens. So you know what happens la- uh, next time. But the idea we try to push is that what you would do, you, you try, you drop it, you see it breaks sometimes, it doesn't break other times, you know what glass is made of, you know the thickness, the process uh, it's used while making it. And from all these considerations, you can uh, understand the intrinsic property of the glass and then you can try to predict what is going to happen this time if I drop it in this specific context. So, but of course, so all these observations have a value and a limitation for understanding causation. So, for instance, as you as you name with the with the service, you get correlations. Correlations are a symptom of causation. They can point to the existing of the causation, and uh, sometimes they do. Sometimes they're just correlations. So you see that the two things always appear together because they have a common cause, as we know. So at the same time, uh, narratives narratives can also point uh, to causation, as we as we push so much here. But of course, alone. They very, uh, hardly ever give you the idea of what is among the big complexity the patient has, what, what is this aspect that is causally re- relevant now. No? But if you put together patient context and patient narratives, then you can have correlations and uh, you have your theory, your, your existing knowledge, and together all these symptoms of uh, dispositions, they give an understanding of how the disposition is and what it would do in combination with different partners. But this doesn't mean so we still have a kind of preference. So we still say that although not so a, a single uh, type of evidence is never enough to show a disposition, there are some types of evidence that we think are necessary. So not sufficient, but necessary. And these are uh, evidence of uh, the context, deeply deep understanding of the context you're trying to establish causation about, and deep uh, knowledge of theory. What do you know about that? What is already known? It's a collection of existing knowledge and theory. And so this is necessary, but alone is not sufficient. And then you have a constellation of other types of of evidence that uh, help make your causal uh, inference or causal prediction in the end, which could be case studies, uh, more narratives, clinical studies, epidemiological studies, etc. So they are needed, but they're not the top two necessary, uh, although insufficient types of causal evidence, we think. 
I mean, that's the really controversial uh, part of the causal singularism and dispositionalism is that the RCT is not something that is necessary <laughs> for getting a grip on the mechanism. I mean, that, that's, that's radical because so even someone like me, who's a qualitative researcher, the typical or a common view of qualitative research is that it really gives in it gives context to, to to results of randomized controlled trials rather than set the agenda of causation that there are already single causes and you know qualitative research is quite good at getting some context around those 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 causes but you're going a step even further and saying actually single case studies or qualitative research gives in effect causal evidence well, you have to think. You have to think also. Why are we interested in uh, RCTs? You know, we're interested in them because we want to know whether the cause made a difference to the effect. But from a singularist perspective, it doesn't matter if it made a difference on the population level if it didn't make a difference in that individual. And that's the question. You cannot go from a difference making statistical, you know, a statistical difference maker to say it made a difference for this person. And that's what you need to do in the clinical case. You need to say something about this particular patient. But of course, from public health perspective, that in itself is not so interesting. Unless you're part of a clinical study, then it's interesting. <laughs> mm. And that's, I think when we spoke in the first episode with Samantha too, she said something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, it's easy to say you want pluralistic research methods, some qual case studies, but actually, unless you change the ontological view of causation, you don't really realise that that potential, if you like. If it's just, well, a bit of quality, it, it, it looks good to have, everyone advocates the view that we should have pluralistic, pluralistic methods now. But, but, but like I said, my example is that if randomised controlled trials still sit at the top of the hierarchy and we'll just put some qualitative studies in there just to flesh it out and to give a bit of context. But that's not enough for you guys, right? <laughs> no, no. We think that qualitative studies are necessary to make the good, a good causal hypothesis. And then you get your, uh, your studies, et cetera, and you carry on with your research. But then after that, you also need a qualitative study to put it into context, of course. Because even the qualitative researchers themselves say, we've got nothing to say about have you told the qualitative researchers this? Because they still think they're just finding about narrative and context. Because even the, the 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 epistemologies and the ontological positions of many of the qualitative methodologies almost exclude themselves from that causal debate. They're like, you know, we're not interested in cause and effect. We can't make those sorts of claims or predictions. We're much more just understanding what is rather than making kind of causal explanations about phenomena or experiences. Yeah, those people doing qualitative research, they fall into two categories. So one of the categories would be the people who are, are thought, they are taught that they don't do anything that is costly relevant. So they, should, they shouldn't even try because they have a human conception, which is part of all scientific methodology. But then you have the other part of the qualitative researchers who wants to say that what they do actually explains something. And it should be used to make a change. I mean, you don't see a PhD dissertation on qualitative research that doesn't say anything about, mm, yeah, maybe we could do this better. You know, maybe we could make a change. Maybe this would have an impact. Maybe, I mean, and if there is any impact or anything that we should do differently based on what they found, they have found something that is causally relevant. You know, so there's also frustration among people doing this type of research that they are not allowed to take it explicitly further. But luckily, a lot of people, they don't think that when you want to change something, you have said something causal, so they can get away with it. But we would say definitely what the kind of information you can get from doing real qualitative research should really be included, <laughs> you know, when we think of how to do things better. It's true. Mm. Brilliant. So, you, you, yeah, I mean, it really gives voice to a corner of research methods which have been yes. beaten down with a hierarchy saying you're at the bottom, you have nothing really to add to this causal discussion. I think also, Eliana, this, um, this uh, pluralism perspective, 
it's very easy to do what uh, um, Oliver is saying that yeah, everyone agrees that you need plural methods. You know, you add a bit of this and you add a bit of that. But this is one of the things that you and I have been really working on challenging a bit, that you cannot just have the more methods you have, the better causal evidence you got. No, no, we're trying to make, we are uh, really trying to make kind of a scheme or pattern for the scientific discovery, where we also include the clinical discovery, it's part of it, where all these type of types of evidence are, uh, have their place in the discovery. So it's not that, oh, you just do the two of them so that you fulfill the requirements to get uh, the grant. No, because we truly believe that a good scientific hypothesis and good scientific discovery must start from this uh, contextual understanding and understanding of previous knowledge. And we have a lot of, you know, philosophical uh, grounds uh, for this. But I think that the strength we have is that we also have a lot of voices from the practice because there are a lot of philosophical papers that are rather good that uh, I struggle to read. But then in the end, when, when I'm able to go through these 20 pages, uh, I mean, they, they make a good point of, of integrating this type of evidence of, and of, for pluralism. But what we get, we also get these voices from, uh, from the practice, not only clinical practice, we have also other type of practices, but COSELT is especially about clinics, and that is the start of COSELT. So it's the both, that the clinical voices give us strength to develop and to um, uh, promote the philosophical point of view, and that's the, the contrary also, that the philosophical standpoint, or standpoint empowers the clinicians to consider their, their the practice from their own evidence as a good premise from their, from their practice, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't do their research. Now they're allowed to just, uh, you know, go to work. You know, of course, they need to do their research. They need to look at uh, the knowledge that is out there because that's definitely part of it. But what they choose has to be based on the evidence that is closest to the patient. Yeah, so on that choice, so so if they experience something in their clinical practice, they look at the evidence to see how that experience compares with the evidence. So let's say a patient responds or doesn't respond or whatever it might be. And if there's a contradiction there, what do they do? Like, who do they believe? Do they, do they believe their N of 1 sitting in front of them in their clinic or do they believe, you know, the, the randomized controlled trial? I, I know it's not as simple as that, but they're the dilemmas that clinicians have when either the, the reality of clinical practice doesn't match up to the evidence or the evidence doesn't seem to fit the clinical practice. So that's where the difficult part comes, and that's where it's important to uh, try to... The point is that if you have an understanding of how and the process that might be happening then you also have a ground to uh, evaluate how the clinical trial applies to your patient, no? So because then you understand uh, it worked there, could it work here? Could that have been here? Because you know the process that could have been happening in the patient, and then you, you compare with, for instance, the patient group, etc. If you don't have that uh, knowledge at all, then that's where, uh, you know, what you believe most shows also your what we call the philosophical bias you have what you think causation is so uh, if you think well i believe that i believed in the what the clinical trial the statistical evidence tells me so i prefer to follow that or i prefer to follow the patient so but with this i would like really to stress that any choice has to be made on the best uh, medical knowledge but we don't believe that the best medical knowledge is the clinical trial, you know? So the best medical knowledge is what you know is your theory, all the, you know, the knowledge that there is out there, including also, you know, trials, etc. if you want, and the knowledge of your patient, especially. I couldn't do that because even if I know my brother very well, <laughs> I'm not a clinician, so I don't have the best medical knowledge. So that's the, the message. And also, I mean, it's not like uh, all the evidence will uh, say the same thing either. 
I mean, it's uh, some RCT is going to show that it is causation. Some observation studies are maybe going to show that it's not. You know, you can have different types of evidence going in different directions. And then your philosophical bias about causation and probability will also guide uh, guide you when you choose which evidence that you trust the more. So even from the clinical studies, you will have to think what is the best causal evidence. And maybe just signposting to the future episodes with the clinicians, we may get some of those practical insights about how to, because these are tough judgments to make. And, and, and I think that's the strength of the book is that obviously part one is the philosophical framework, but part two is the, the clinical application or practice. And the idea was that, yeah, we can we can come up with a lot of examples that make our approach seem plausible, but uh, we wanted to have clinicians and we have a patient representative as well who translate the theoretical points of the book to practice and shows uh, and show a bit more concrete what do they do in their own clinical practice or in their own experience? How do they use? this kind of insights or what kind of insights do they have that are in line with the cause health uh, philosophical framework yes and also in this second part you see different uh, ways you can use patient narratives also and the uh, different clinicians in the second part had have their own ways and for example some of them would use uh, patient narratives more in a phenomenological way so that where the clinician shouldn't try to interpreted very much. So the narrative is seen as a way to get the, the experience, the meaning out from the patient and then in, in a way like use it or approach it in order to help the patient. But another way is uh, um, a narrative seen as a co-written effort, a co-written story where the clinician perspective and the patient perspective meet. So the, the, the patient might have some, has normally some insights that clinician didn't think about, didn't see. And the other way around, the, the clinician from uh, her experience has some insights that the patient didn't think about. And then together they use this narrative as, the, the narrative is a tool offered from the clinician to the, to the patient to try to explore the context together. So to create, to co-write this story that is the causal story. Thank you both so much. I think that really provides a really nice overview and context and probably I think we even touched on some topics which may not be directly in the chapter, but I found it really interesting to talk about. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you, Oliver, for having us. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.